Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So this morning as we head into thinking about this end of Genesis chapter 2, I thought we should just take a moment and issue some preliminary thoughts. And I would say that we, I think we all could agree that this is an extremely important topic in our culture today, the issue of the institution of marriage, uh, the creation, the distinction of man and woman. It's a very important topic. It's also incredibly sensitive in our culture today. It touch and, and not for necessarily maybe the reasons that you would think, but marriage, this idea, it touches every single one of us in, in many different ways. And due to the brokenness of our world, we're all interacting with marriages that are broken in many different ways. And so there, all of us in this room come at this with various baggage and various life circumstances. Maybe we've grown up in broken homes. Maybe we've gone through the breakup of a marriage. Maybe we've walked with friends and family who have struggled through marriage trials. And on top of all of that, many of us have single friends who have not got married or are looking for a spouse and just and haven't found one. And to add that whole grief and, and struggle through life when it comes to the institution of marriage. And I mention all of this to try and kind of ward off complaints that we elevate marriage only because um, we don't realize how complex it is. No, we do. <laughs> we do realize that there comes with lots of complexity. And when we start talking about marriage, every single one of us could sit down in a room and talk about, well, what about this instance? And how about this? And this thing happened. And, is the, and we, could, we could handle every anecdotal story. And it would take, we, we, would, we, would exhaust, we would never exhaust the complexity of the issue. But that isn't why we talk about it, because we don't realize how complex it is. To the contrary, though we know it's very difficult, 
we, we think it gives us all the more reason and motivation to emphasize the importance of the covenant of marriage. That it is not here at the end of chapter 2 just by mistake because God ran out of things to talk about and so let's just throw this out here. No, this is a very fundamental, foundation, foundational, important uh, reality in the life of God's creatures and His image bearers. So it's not as, to say, as a way to say with closed eyes, we have it all together or everyone who isn't like this is hopeless, but to say, here is the good way that our God has ordained and let us strive with all the effort we can with the aid of the Holy Spirit to honor what God has ordained as good. Okay, so that's kind of my preliminary like statement. So let's get this first point out of the way. The first point that we see in the text here is this. Men and women are, are the same in very important ways. We are all image bearers. We've covered this extensively, right? We spent weeks talking about the image of God. And men and women, we look at Genesis chapter 1, and we talked about it when we were going through the text. Uh, God makes them male and female. In his image, he creates them. Male and female, God created them in his image. Men and women are the same in very important ways. Image bearers of God. And also... Men and women are distinct from each other in very important ways. <laughs> they are very, they are, they are the similar, they are the same in very important ways, and they are distinct from one another in very important ways. Now, this is where, again, we're trying to be careful and considerate, because usually there's only two views that get any airtime in our culture today. And one view is that that gets a lot of airtime. One of the views that gets a lot of airtime, we either hear that those that would contend that gender is just really um, a subjective identity that is determined by the internal composition of one's own self in vast permeations. That gender is basically internally discovered or internally known and nothing from outside in creation order or in any sort of uh, a source outside of myself makes, uh, gives, has the final word on gender. We either hear that sort of total destruction of the idea of any distinction whatsoever, total obliteration, or else you get on Twitter and you hear the only voices that talk about how incredibly different the genders are. That basically, you know, it's, it, it, you remember the uh, book, most maybe you remember this book, that the title of it was Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, you do remember the book, all right. And it was, it was this idea that men and women are so different that they basically live, occupy in different planets. Like they're not even the same species, they're so different. And, you know, and then they have the, the sort of characterization or the mischaracterization of women should fit into this certain stereotypical, you know, they like pink and ponies or whatever and cooking and that's women. And then men, they, you know, they just, they fish. And no offense, Kevin, they do fish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but women can too, is my point. And, and, you know, and they, ju they just shoot guns and shoot tobacco and that's it. You know, that's like, that's man and woman and they're different. And they're, they, they don't even anything the same. And that's just, that's, those are the two camps that, that get any airtime. <laughs> and and we're, there's, th that there's something more foundational and true and meaningful than just those camps. Men and women are similar, the same in very important good ways. 
But we don't deny they are distinct and different also in very important ways. So our big idea for this morning is this. From the beginning, God ordained interdependent, working together, interdependent distinctiveness to fulfill his purposes in the world. From the beginning, this isn't like God started this all off and thought, well, how is this going to work? Well, maybe, no, from the beginning in the creation account, God ordained interdependent, working together, and, you know, they, 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 they need each other, really. Interdependent, yet distinctiveness. They're not this, exactly the same. They work together. They complement one another for the working of his purposes in the world. So, before we get into the exposition of the text, just, just uh, bear with me. Keep your finger in, Matthew, or in Genesis 2 and flip with, you to Ma- flip with me to Matthew 19. Um, Jim mentioned this in his sermon in Genesis chapter 2, that the whole chapter here is an excursus. That was the fancy, that was the fancy word he used, as the excursus. It's like a, it's an interlude where the, where the writer, where Moses is going back into a detail that happened earlier in chapter 1 and kind of fleshing it out, giving more detail. Well, a lot of people see contradiction or, you know, this is a later story or maybe these are different stories. You know, what's going on here? Well, you listen to the words of our Savior, Jesus, God in the flesh. And in Matthew chapter 19, he's having this discussion on, on, uh, on divorce. And he answers back in verse 4 of chapter 19 in Matthew. He answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He said, have you not read this? And there Jesus is quoting Genesis 1:27 and Genesis 2:24. So he is aware of both of these accounts of creation and holds them both as, as up as, as, as uh, presenting one unified reality. Male and female, God made them. And the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus himself, we can read this also in Mark uh, chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, where Jesus sees no contradiction and he affirms the gender distinction and yet also the interdependent diversity that fulfills his purpose in the world. So then go back to Genesis chapter 2. That was just a little side note on the veracity, the, the truthfulness of this passage. Jesus affirms it himself. So if you don't like gender distinctions, you have a problem, not with me, <laughs> you have a problem with Jesus. And so you might want to take it up with him. But So we're into Genesis chapter 2. Let's look then and walk through the text here a little bit. Right here in verse 18 is the first time we hear something not good. If you're reading through your Bible, right, we're talking about, we do this on Wednesday nights, we're talking about observations. And you've made all the observations in Genesis 1. What's the common refrain? He said... And then it was, and he saw it, and it was good. He says, he saw it, and it was good. And over and over again, it was good, it was good. And at the end of chapter 1, it is very good. And so now in 2.18 is this first time we see this new phrase called not good. <laughs> We're very familiar with not good. But this is the first time in your Bible that something comes up, wait, this is not Good. The first time we hear this, this not goodness was that man was alone and he has no helper to, that is fit for him. 
he is commanded. This was kind of a problem because he's commanded to work and keep this garden, but it is just him. He is alone. He, he's, he got some, he's alone. And God himself says, this is not good. And so the way that the process that God employs is kind of an interesting, it's kind of an interesting way that God does this. He, he takes Adam before he has his helper, his, this partner, this wife, he, he seems to, he, he heightens Adam's aloneness. Which, I mean, he, he has him go and he's looking at all the animals and he's naming all the animals and animals are coming along and he's beginning to see all these complementary roles. <laughs> you know, all the, all the animals going by and he might even see how some of them interact well with him and how some don't. Like, the, you know, a, a cat, uh, you know, that's not something you're going to like to be around a lot, right? Amen? Yeah. <laughs> and then he sees a dog, and he's like, hey, this might really be like, this is a good compliment to me, you know? And so he starts hanging out with the dog, and then I might want something a little more intellectually stimulating than uh, just playing fetch, you know? It, but he's seeing all these compliments. Sorry, cat lovers. But you may not be in the right place. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, he sees all these complimentary positions, and 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 yet he's noticing there's no compliment to me. I, I'm I'm without a compliment. You might imagine him uh, finding a cardinal. The cardinals are beautiful, right there. Just you walk around, you can hear them singing, and their their call. And yet, like yesterday afternoon, I was over by I won't give the address over on the east side of town, and. There was three or four of them calling back and forth. Beautiful. But so Adam is there maybe, and he sees this beautiful red bird come along. And he's like, oh, this is kind of cardinal red. I think I'll call it a cardinal. I'm sure that's how it went. And, then, and he sees this red bird, and it's beautiful. And, and then he sees this gray bird that's got the same crest, and it's got some red markings, but it's not a red cardinal. What is that? Oh, well, that's a cardinal too. That, oh, this is the male cardinal, and this is the female cardinal. They... Oh, they complement one another to fulfill their role of, of, of what God has created them to do in the world. This is, they have a compliment. That's really nice for the cardinal. Uh, I, where's my helper? Where, where's, where is the one that's fit for me? And he kind of heightens over and over again this awareness that there, and, and we, I, I think this is kind of, even though the naming of the species is very interesting, it's, it's sandwiched between these two realities. In verse 18, I, there's no helper fit for him. And then at the end of 20, it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so while it's, the text is talking about the naming of the animals, I think one of the, the bigger points is that Adam is discovering, I don't have a compliment. They're, they're, I'm missing a part of myself. There's no helper fit for me. There's no complimentary position. So then God sets about to remedy this problem, verses 21 through 23 puts Adam to sleep. The first problem that's been in the created universe, he sets about to resolve it, puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib, rib from his side and makes woman. He doesn't make a totally unique and different creature. He takes pre-existing Adam, a part of himself, and makes woman out of the same stuff as Adam. That's why he is man and she is woman. The, the, the English is trying to get at the Hebrew terms underneath there sound very similar. And so they're trying to get at that reality. Adam is then awakened. He's woken up and the woman is brought to him. And what does Adam do? He breaks into poetry. 
He breaks into song. Talk about defeating masculine stereotypes. He, he writes a sonnet. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. This beautiful poetry and excitement out of Adam seeing someone distinct from himself yet made for himself. An interdependent distinctiveness. Very common popular quote from Matthew Henry. I just share it with you in case you haven't heard of it. Many of you, many of you probably have or at least heard of the idea. It's quoted many times. But Matthew Henry says this on his commentary. He says, That the woman was made out of a rib of the side of Adam, uh, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near to his heart to be beloved. That there's this distinctiveness, but he's not out of the head to rule over man, not out of his feet that he might stand upon her, but beside her, equal with him, with his arm around her to protect her and near to his heart that he might love her. So this is how God sets about to remedy the problem of it being not good that man is alone. He makes woman distinct from him, different from him, in very important and good ways, yet a complement to each other for the furthering of God's purpose in the world. And then we have this kind of commentary from the narrator. It's another, verse 24, 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Already, already, so there's this whole understanding of family that's going to come out of this. The man's going to leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one partnership. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. These verses serve as a commentary on all that's been discussed so far. And we see in the first two chapters of this entire record of God's revelation to us, we see, I mean, many important things, right? We've talked about the distinction of creator and creature and the Imago Dei. And we've talked about all of these different things. And what do we see in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis? The institution of marriage, the foundation of, the, of, of marriage. The man and woman, they're given to each other. They're fully exposed and known to each other. It's awkward to us post-fall, Adam and Eve get coverings and we now have, we, we wear coverings. But there's a lot being communicated in that, in that they basically, they had no shame, nothing hidden. They were fully known by the other and they had no shame for it. So why does all of this matter? As we look through this text, why does all of this matter? Well, first I want to say this matters because the institution of marriage as set up by God ought to be honored and obeyed. The institution of marriage as set up by God ought to be honored and obeyed. The kind of the colloquial phrase we use, one man, one woman, one lifetime. Is the historic Christian position of one man, one woman, and one lifetime. The two become one, an interdependent, yet distinctive pair for the purposes of God in the world. I was an, a, alerted to an interesting uh, study um, done on female nurses uh, that married in the late 80s, early 90s, and they compared them with this test study who were married early on in their life. And they were, there was a study, how, is, how does marriage affect your health? 
and, and what, what happens you know, to, to, uh, to these female nurses in these 20, 30 years that they've remained married? You know, what happened to their health? And you think, oh gosh, I know my husband. You know, good luck to them. Well, they've actually found that being married early was, is beneficial. Like 35% uh, less cardiovascular disease and all these interesting things. But anyway, this article written in the Wall Street Journal, not, this is not some, not some fringe, like I didn't find this on the internet somewhere. The Wall Street Journal is, is posting this, and they, they quote this anthropologist, Joseph Henrich, who says that marriage represents, this is, a, this is just an anthropologist, this isn't some Christian apologist. This is just a guy who studies man and his groupings. Anthropologist Joseph Henrich says, Marriage represents the keystone institution for most, not all, societies and may be the most primeval of human institutions. Marriage. And we say to that, duh, it's like on page two of our Bible. Yes, you are exactly right, sir. Marriage may be, maybe it's one of the most primeval, primeval of all institutions. Yes, all the way back. To Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So therefore marriage, as God has set it up, ought to be honored and obeyed. So this matters because God has set it up. But why else does it matter? Because marriage is good. Marriage is good. There is an immediate not good that God is resolving. It was not good that man was alone. And so the immediate resolution was marriage was marriage. Marriage matters because it is good. Unlike some faith traditions that hold that marriage is just for procreation primarily, they're actually, I don't think it's faithful to this text. The, 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 one of the first problems that God is solving is marriage is Adam's loneliness. That there is a loneliness that exists. Uh, the text seems to show a very valid argument for marriage being about companionship. Lifelong companionship to dispel loneliness. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson's sermon this week, and he put it this way. He says, he's a reputable theologian, says marriage is first given for deep companionship. Companionship is provided in a lifelong relationship between husband and wife. So the institution of marriage, as God set it up, ought to be honored and obeyed because it is good. And secondly, because, or thirdly, because it leads to countless other goods. There's a concept here called the unity of the goods. We won't talk a lot about that. But when marriage is honored and husbands and wives fulfill their roles, their, their interdependent distinctiveness, their families flourish, children flourish under their, their, their parents' marriage. When families and children flourish, neighborhoods flourish. When families and children and neighborhoods flourish, then cities, employers, and countries flourish. There's a unity of the goods. And when you start tearing down things at their basic level, it has reverberating consequences. Marriage is good and it leads to countless other goods. And this is why the cultural attack on marriage is so tragic. Tragic. It's why the populist Christian abandonment of faithful marriage is so shameful. On the often the complaint against Christians when they speak up on the issue of marriage, and specifically proponents of traditional marriage, one man, one woman, one lifetime, the, the, the complaint is, well, what does it hurt you? <laughs> if you want to stay, stay faithful in your marriage, then, you, then go ahead. Let everyone else do what they want to do. Well, 
there's two problems with that. The first is that um, it is no longer just like everyone do your own. It is, it is being forced, support my view and celebrate my view primarily. So it's, it's a bit of a lie. But secondly, because tearing down fundamental institutions that will disable our societal backbone does hurt us all. It does affect us all. We ought to honor marriage. Now, again, just a quick insertion here. This is not a dismissal of really difficult circumstances that happen at times. And we could go around the room and talk about all of the difficult situations. We did not advocate for women to stay in abusive marriages. We did not advocate that if you are abandoned by your spouse, that somehow there's, there's some sort of moral obligation. I mean, we, there's all these things we could talk about. Many factors and many stories could be inserted here. But yet, granting all of these things we could talk about, it does not deny the fundamental reality of the value of marriage. The argument for the support of marriage is that although they are absolutely imperfect due to sin, they ought to be treasured and honored and fought for. So this reality flows out of beyond our marriages into the broader world. The local church is often described in Scripture as a family. That's one of the, we, we are a building, um, we are a body, we're also a family. It's one of, the, one of the illustrations that is often used in your New Testament to talk about the nature of the church. We are a family. We are brother and sister in Christ. And so if you are here this morning and you are a repentant believer in Jesus Christ, you are my brother, you are my sister in a very real, meaningful way. And so what does that mean? Well, the same thing. God is using interdependent distinctiveness to fulfill his purposes in this world. So while gender distinctions are real and God uses them for the furthering of his purposes in the world, all sorts of distinctions exist amongst his family and God uses those interdependently, yet distinct, to fulfill his purposes in the world. Those differences are not accidents or problems to be solved or something to be discarded. This is why one of our outcomes is, uh, is everyone operating in their spiritual gifts, serving with spiritual gifts, because we believe that one of our convictions that whatever God is doing in the world, he's doing through all of his Christ people. And that there is a particular way God has wired you, including your gender, but including all sorts of other things, your spiritual gifting even, to work his purposes in the world. And all of those come together for the building up and the benefit of the church. God from the beginning ordained, yes, in the covenant of marriage, this interdependent distinctiveness to fulfill his purposes in the world. And it is something to celebrate. The variety of individuals and their giftings are intrinsic goods to be lived into, to be redeemed, and to be honored for the building up of the body. When specific roles are given for leading in certain roles within the church, it is not arbitrary, but rooted in real differences that are not differences in value, but in role. And there's an interdependent distinctiveness that works together for the furthering of God's purposes in the world. One of the most meaningful moments that uh, in, my, in the life of, of ministry, I, I think, is baptisms. When you, get to, when you get to get into the waters with someone and, and baptize them and, and put them down into the waters, symbolizing death with Christ and raising to walk in newness of life. And as you stand there, and you, it's, it's a liturgy of types. You know, you, you kind of have I've written out what I'm going to say, but... I remember standing there with Andy uh, in, in the baptismal waters, Andy Kellner, and, and him making this profession of faith. 
and, and getting to say to him, I now recognize you as a brother in Christ. And just, I mean, it was, I don't want to get all Pentecostal on you here, but I was like, I felt the, I mean, it's, it's moving to be able to say, because what I'm saying, and I recognize you as my brother or sister in Christ, I'm saying, I need you and you need me. And let's work together as God has equipped us to fulfill his purposes in the world. It is not that you and I are exactly the same. It is that we are part of a family. It is, it is this interdependent distinctiveness. We also see this in the broader universal church. It's one of the reasons why I rejoice and am a Protestant by conviction. There are other churches in our community, in our region, in our state that look a whole lot different than us. <laughs> but are getting after the same goal of seeing God glorified, seeing disciples made, seeing the gospel spread. And we don't have to have carbon copies of each other. There's a distinctiveness that is good that, that, that fits God's purpose in the mutual goal of seeing him glorified. So we see this interdependent distinctiveness in marriage, the local church, the universal church, and all of them are fed by the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 Verses 15 through 33, we're not going to read it. It's okay. You, you should read it. It's good. I've read it. I'm, I'm not saying, but this morning we don't, we're running out of time to get through it. But it's this incredible section that talks about the life of the church and how the church works together, singing sim, hall, sims, hymns, psalms, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and, and their service to one another, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it goes into how the family structured, almost as though critical to the life of the church and the, the beauty and the furthering of the church is the marriages of the church. And here's how they relate to one another. Um, but not by just some definition. And then the husband there, wives are there called to submit to and respect their husbands. And husbands are called there to love their wives. They're called to love them, not out of some definition of love that they create, but specifically by the example set by Jesus, who loved his church and gave himself for her. He gave his life for his people. There is a spirit of service that is, that is right there in the midst of this interdependent distinctiveness. The, the husband serving the wife as Christ loved the church. The wife serving the husband as she's a helpmeet. And there is this, neither, neither one of them diminished as though I'm up here and you're down here, serve me. Or you're up here and I'm down here and I serve. But this, this interdependent equality yet distinction that is celebrated and as they seek to serve one another God's purposes go forward Philippians 2 speaks of Christ not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself for what purpose that he might become obedient unto death in order to save his people what is the empowering force I mean we're talking about something radical here Sinclair Ferguson he also talks about one of the reasons for the transformation in marriage statistics, how it's kind of falling out of favor. One of the reasons for the transformation in marriage statistics is not so much that people have ceased to believe in marriage, but that people have become so self-obsessed that they were unwilling to make a radical commitment to another human being. <laughs> what is the empowering force for living in radical commitment and love for others? The Holy Spirit, active in God's people, opening their eyes to see this, the great love and service which with Christ served his church. As he sits in eternity and they pl 
plan this plan out, this covenant of redemption, this eternal covenant, this eternal idea they plan out, will be that man will fall into rebellion. That's every one of us. And will fall under God's condemnation and his rebellion and deserve his punishment. But a plan is put in place that the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God the Son, would incarnate, put on flesh, and serve the church, serve his people by giving up his own self, by laying down his own life, sacrificing himself for the good of the church that he might rescue us out of our sins and bring us into his family. That also, now I'm not a, it doesn't matter. Uh, He does all of this to set an example for us. Not primarily, it isn't actually working in atonement, but it is an example that shows us how we ought to regard one another in the family of God, in service and love, putting your needs first, putting your desire, putting your benefit, your good, your flourishing first in the marriage relationship, interdependent, distinctiveness, operating our gifts that the purposes of God might go forward. Practically, what ought we to do as a result of Genesis 2 and the institution of marriage? We ought to honor marriage your own, and those around you. Seek to operate the way that God has made you in all of the the ways he's gifted you for the benefit of your marriage, for the benefit of your family, for the benefit of your local church, for the benefit of the church universal. But honor your marriage, your own, and those around you. Appreciate distinctiveness. And lastly, use your own distinctiveness as a God-given good to serve your spouse, your family, your church, and to see God glorified. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we just have covered and and talked about a very big reality and institution, a foundational principle that we see working out and, and ruined in many ways throughout Scripture and then yet redeemed, Father, we want to see you glorified. We want to see you honored. We want in every we want to worship you with all of our lives, and that includes honoring and celebrating the institution of marriage. I pray for the married couples in this place this morning. I pray, God, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we might serve and respect and honor each other, that God. That, that, that the roles that we have been given to walk into, God, that you would just help us as we seek to make much of you in our families. I pray for those who are divorced or widowed or single and, and, and have all sorts of stories and struggles. God, I pray that they would see in this broader reality, even through their struggle, God, there is still a place for them in the family of God that they have brothers and sisters, that their their distinctiveness is beneficial and vital to the life of the church, God, and that all of it would be motivated by and rejoiced in because of your great love and service to your people. May our eyes be opened and caught up with and full of the joy we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ empowering us to serve one another, living in our distinctiveness interdependently for the furthering of your purposes in this world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.